Welcome to season five of the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In this season, we're exploring relational spirituality, which is not rooted in character formation and instead in immediate relational engagement with God. It is a relational mystical spirituality encouraging people to enter deeply into living and loving in relation to their own self, others and God. We can't think of any better venture to give our lives to than this and I'm sure you'd agree with us. When we set out to record this episode, we were working with deep listening as the value we were discussing. This is a term both Steve and I have carried for years and we're incredibly fond of it. The challenge has always been how to differentiate the value of deep listening from deep listening as a practice. When we set out to record this episode, we were working with deep listening as the value that we were discussing. This is a term both Steve and I have carried for years and we were incredibly fond of it. The challenge has always been how to differentiate the value for deep listening from deep listening as a practice. As I began editing the episode, it struck me that we speak a lot about deep listening in this episode and this mirrors the way in which the mystics speak a tremendous amount about silence. When I shared this with Steve, he suggested changing the value from deep listening to active silence. I think this is a great suggestion and moving forward we're going to do just that. In this episode though we speak about deep listening so please don't be confused about that. (laughs) Urban Mystic relies on your support to do the work that we do. Please consider making a regular or one-off contribution via the, the link to PayPal in the show notes. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform. Well, Steve, I thought that this week I'm going to take the gap <laughs> and kick it off and throw it over to you since that's the way <laughs> we played it last week, just with a shoe on the other foot. <laughs> well, I guess you got to the door first, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, a second one of our real core values is that of deep listening. Deep listening is just one of those things that has got so much texture and nuance to it and yet it just sounds so passive and so I thought I'd just start off by kicking forward the idea that that receptivity differs to passivity passivity is just sitting there and not interacting with people and feeling like you're listening to them and you can be disengaged whereas deep listening is 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 actually a receptive listening it's the kind of curious listening where you're giving someone your attention and you're setting aside other things that you could be doing you know so if you're meeting online with you know there's four or five people in zoom and someone is telling their story and the others are practicing deep listening it's not the kind of listening where they just mute their mic and they go about tinkering about other things you know as though the person that's speaking is is doing some kind of background uh, activity it's it's rather the kind of listening where what they do is they'll set aside their other devices and actually spend that time giving their attention to the person, listening not so much just to the stories and the words that are given, but actually trying to listen a step past that. It's not the kind of listening where you're listening to someone in order to respond or even to tell your own story. It's the kind of listening where you're listening to someone to gain a, a real deep understanding and insight into what someone else's experience meant for, meant for them. So in that sense, it's the kind of listening where your intuitive senses are opening, your your physical senses are opening, you're actually observing the person, you're wanting to see 
their body language. You want to see their facial expressions. You want to see and understand and empathize with them for what their story means to them. It's not the kind of listening where you want to correct the person's story or tell the other person how they were supposed to interpret their story or give them some kind of pithy saying to make their life better or their past experience better or anything like that. But it's giving that kind of focused attention to the person to really hear them and not just to make sense of their story, but to, to enter into what the story meant for them and build up that picture, build up that puzzle. And so in some senses and, and in some spaces, open-ended questions, especially by facilitator, like if, if and when we run courses, is, is important or may be important, especially for people that aren't used to telling their story to help draw them out. But it's not the kind of thing where, where the idea is to respond to people or to come into their story and to interrupt their story, to change their belief or change their process. It's, it's about being there to listen to them and listen to the depth of what the experience means for them rather than just at the surface level. So I thought I'd just start off by throwing that out and, and checking to see how that matches your understanding of deep listening. And then let's, let's pick up anything from there that I put down or that you put down and, 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 and take the conversation from there. Cool. Well, just to prove your point, I, I've I've just picked up three things that you said wrong there that I just want to respond to and just correct. <laughs> just to... Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I was unsure whether I should just respond flippantly like that or go, well, actually, like if, if, if we're going to talk about deep listening, then my first response is not to then pick up the mic and go for it, but actually to ask you some questions and to and to engage with what you're saying to further clarify um, what you're putting on the table. But uh, given our conversation as we sort of went into it, I don't think that was your intention, if I'm correct. Um, no. <laughs> so, absolutely. I mean, this, yes, I think without a doubt, this is one of my favorite things to talk about, which sounds a little bit weird to say I want to talk about deep listening, but... Yes, there's, there's, there's definitely a, 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 yes, a, a paradox. <laughs> paradox <disconnect. there. laughs> but I, I love, I actually really enjoy doing it, which is, which is perhaps a little bit out of the ordinary. At least it is sort of anecdotally, experientially within my own life. It's, I do feel that I'm a bit out of the ordinary where it comes to, to, to people and listening. I find most people want to listen to respond and want to interrupt, correct, or just just suck at listening, basically, and will tune in and out. And like one of my pet peeves is to sit with someone who, while you're talking, will pick up their phone and check a message or check a date or swipe through a notification or whatever. Like, um, but it's this is just absolutely one of my favorite areas to spend time in. Let me put it like that. Whether it is doing it myself which i really enjoy doing i enjoy it although it's also supremely uncomfortable still i think when someone does it to me it's a bit of a double-edged sword i find it really i find it really really nice it's it's really affirming it's very powerful and meaningful when someone will do that for me but it can also be a little bit unnerving because it it it, I think it it expects actually it asks for some vulnerability on the side of the storyteller, but I but I do I do enjoy that, and I think I'm learning to enjoy it more and more. 
I love being able to to kind of share on it and to to for lack of a better word teach it to people. I really enjoy sort of the modeling side of teaching that and and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that with couples for example and really just try and help build the practice of deep listening into their relating to each other their relationship and that's been like I just love I love seeing the effect that that has on any two people interacting with each other equally actually to be very honest I, I really enjoy kind of teaching and modeling that in the self-to-self relationship when I've done spiritual direction or companionship with people helping to highlight the possibilities of what happens when you really listen to yourself listen to your own story that you tell to yourself and over yourself and there's a difference there and listening to things that emerge from deep within you you're you're discovering your own needs your own wants your own desires your dreams etc yeah i i think i would put this very close to the top of the list of top priorities for me in life and i can remember years ago when i used to i used to run leadership experiences for students and part of it was to actively teach sort of lecture slash workshop with students on leadership this was always one of my go-tos because i just did not see secondary education institutions schools high schools forming their students around deep listening i think to a certain extent it was there when they taught them to research and to to think a little for themselves, although even there that sometimes was hit and miss. But in terms of the actual just active listening skills, it just wasn't there. And I, I think, how can you be a leader if you can't really listen to people? And, you know, I could remember trying to just teach on deep listening, active listening. It's got a few different sort of terms to it. <laughs> I would see teachers in the back of our hall start to roll their eyes. And I think, oh, man. Thank you for proving my point. Like, I don't think you're actually listening well. I think I'll start there. This has been a central part of my life for 20 years, not because I do it very well or have always done it very well, but it's it's kind of there to some extent sort of within my DNA and has been part of my practice. And I feel like I, I try to work harder and harder on doing it really well over the years. But... If I had to, I think if I had to highlight a value that could potentially, oh, that's, no, maybe that's not possible to say. I want to say it's almost top of my list in the three that we're looking at, but I don't know if that's possible. But it's just, I'm trying to make the case it's so important. I don't think as a human being you can go through life without cultivating the ability to listen deeply in a number of different ways across different levels and different contexts. I think perhaps just to just to come in there, when you're telling your story, the top thing for you to be doing is telling your story. When you're practicing deep listening in relation to someone telling their story, the top thing that you can do, be doing is practicing that deep listening. That's that's the way yeah. I perceive it. They they they're really number one because to really listen deeply you have you have to be listening to someone that is willing to tell their story yeah i i I hear you i I think i think the the slight difference in terms of what i was trying to go to is kind of my personal preference i think i would prefer to be listening than to be speaking Uh, but at the same time it's very hard for me to rank order you know storytelling 
versus listening. And I think the way you put that is is really helpful and very, very clear because that's possibly some of the vulnerability I talk about in terms of telling my own story. To rank that as, as really high means to kind of own that space and own my own story and to go, this is important. And I, and I feel like I would want to share it and I would want it to be heard. But because I find that a lot of people are not very good at listening, I'm, I'm aware that I still carry some hurts around, just some baggage, I guess, around your story is, is at least in my experience, it's not always that important. So it is easier to sort of retreat back into listening. But but the value, yeah, as, as you put it, I mean, the value of storytelling is you, you can't scrub that off the board. You couldn't put that as a second. And I, and I like that talks to me about a, some, some, some form of reciprocal relationship. There's a movement. There's a dyna, dynamism there between when I tell, I tell and I own and I embody and I explore and I self-reveal. And in contrast, you wait very actively and we're going to get into this now and you and you listen and you and you attach little flags to things that pop up, not because you're going to respond to them, but because you're going to explore those further potentially or ask some open questions or reflect them back. This is what I heard you saying, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I like how you put that. You, you do raise a really excellent point just in that context as well, that it's not an easy thing to do. Like, deep deep listening is not easy when your story is intertwined with someone else like mm. as you say with couples their story means that that they've got an experience that's part of how they've landed where they're at and it's very easy to want to jump in to correct that story because you know no, you didn't get that right about me or or no you didn't see that right or i've got to defend myself and I think when you're very close to someone and your life is intertwined with them or the experience is intertwined with them and they see things differently, the default can be to want to correct them. And that's, I find that particularly unhelpful when people do that with me. <laughs> because I've arrived at a conclusion. I, I, may, I may have gotten the facts wrong, but I'm actually more concerned about where the disconnect is relationally. And that's often in the conclusion rather than in whether I've got an event right or wrong. And and that, you can get lost in that. I think when considering deep listening, how do you approach that and deal with that is a question that I would want to throw out almost immediately. <laughs> can I take a little bit of a, a longer run at that? Oh, absolutely. Because I thought that it would be quite helpful up front to put some form of a framework out around how I potentially we understand deep listening and this is something that i've used for quite a long time that i think gives a reasonable departure point before we before we get into to some of those specifics so if i can trespass on your patience to get to your question let me let me have a run at that and then then we can move back into that so for me deep listening is a threefold cycle that is cyclical upon itself as well because it has to be repeated and repeated and repeated. And the the baton changes hands if there are two people, let's say, in the interaction. It gets infinitely more complicated with every person you add. But let's just for now talk about two people listening well to each other. 
So one will speak and one will listen because you have to start there. So we're talking about listening. The person who holds the baton now is the person who is charged with listening. So they are they are going to listen. So that, that is their responsibility. There are there are three parts to that, but but there's a flow over time. And as you move through a conversation, if you're listening well, the responsibility for listening is going to move back and forth between people. But I would argue as a base framework that these three things have to happen before you can pass the listening baton over to your partner. The first thing that happens is the speaker gets to speak. They get to tell a portion of their story. They get to explore a feeling, an event, whatever it is that they want to say. I, I would also, perhaps it's, it's worth also just quickly differentiating between listening and deep listening. You go to McDonald's, you say, I want this burger and these fries and whatever. You expect someone to listen to you, but it's far more functional. You don't necessarily need somebody to move into this threefold process. It's just, okay, cool, type it in, da 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 da, da. off you go, you get your burger later. You greet a colleague, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, and you, oh, my goodness, the weather's bad, the rugby sucked, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great, move on. A lot of listening happens, and that facilitates, I think, interactions and to some degree relationships with us as human to human and even within the self at a very general transactional functional level all the time everywhere on the planet all the time deep listening is a step further where you really have to intentionally craft a space for the deepening and the enrichment of a relationship and you don't get there by using the more superficial tools of listening which is often a little bit more argumentative a little bit more quick it can be a little bit more lighthearted it can be you know i mean i i i am um, sorry just say that again d deep listening is a step further where you intentionally craft a space for the deepening of the relationship yes yeah and, and you're not going to get to this space in the relationship without deep listening you know you're not going to get there from the quick back and forth the i think this i think this i think this i think this okay we're agreed you don't actually get into the depths of things. And, and, I'll, and I'll put forward a, another threefold thing now in terms of why I believe that and, and what sort of led me to that point. But people often believe, I think, and in my experience at least, that it bears, that bears up, that just the yesterday you said this and I didn't like it. Oh, well, actually I meant that, says person B. Person A says, yeah, but that really sucked. Person B says, oh, well, yeah, well, I don't know. That's just the way it goes sometimes. Person A says, well, you know, I'm not going to talk to you now for a day. Person B says, okay, fine, be that way. That's a very negative interaction. And I think we would probably all agree on the surface that's a very negative interaction. But it can equally be negative. Where it's, I didn't like what you did yesterday. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I actually just meant to do this. Oh, okay, well, I suppose that's fine then, and off we go. Because it glosses over moments of deep import where there are potentially things happening within each of us way below the surface that are important and important to explore. Because we don't carry our hurts on the surface. We manifest our hurts on the surface. But deep relationship happens far deeper down within each of us, and that's where we make those connections. 
and it requires a process that takes us deeper into that. Now, minor hurts that manifest on the surface are sometimes carried on the surface and they can be dealt with. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, you know, your partner walks past you and bumps you with a tray and you go, oh, that hurt. And they go, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to bump you. I was just walking to the table. Oh, okay, fine. I'm not necessarily suggesting you need a six-hour conversation to solve that. But if they do that, and you think they do that often, and that's deliberate, then you might need a six-hour conversation to solve that. And so you're not going to get to these spaces of depth. And, and I think you, you, you see the same where partners try to tell their stories to each other, where friends try to tell their stories to each other. If a story is met and its reception is met with the sharing back of, oh, yes, that also happened to me at some point. I did this and this and this and this. I don't think you go as deep as if you move into deep listening. And so it can, to some extent, still keep our relationships on the surface. I'm, I'm moving, I know in my mind, I'm moving relatively quickly and I feel like I'm, get, I'm covering a huge amount of ground, which, you know, there might be questions and I even am asking myself questions as I listen to myself speak. What about this? What about this? You missed that. You're not covering this. But I'm, I'm trying to cover a huge amount of ground and then give space to sort of go further. So as I'm speaking, I realize, let, let me talk about the three layers and then I'll talk about the threefold process and then perhaps we can move beyond that. Very, very, very simple. I'll just disclaimer up front. I know it's super simple but it's a helpful framework to bear in mind as we start to think of ourselves as humans, having human interactions, and then we look at what it would be for two humans, let's say, to do deep listening, and then perhaps we go further into the Pandora's box of doing deep listening with God. I don't know. Okay, so the three-level the, 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 the three framework. Behind every behavior is a feeling. Behavior is level one, surface level. That's what we see. That's what manifests. One of the easiest ways I, I find to describe this is when you talk about uh, adult-to-child relationship. Child walks into a room, kicks something, throws their jacket across the room, and you think, whoa, we're going to have to put a stop to that very quick. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like you can't kick stuff around here and throw things around. That costs money, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I think many parents would uh, would connect with that sort of reactionary, like, whoa, what the hell are you doing? That's the behavior. It's surface level. That's what we see manifesting. It's the eruption of the volcano. I'll leave it there at that point. Level two is behind that behavior is a feeling. That child comes in with something below the surface that is moving around, that is creating some sort of friction, some sort of pressure, and that's why it erupts. It erupts in a behavior. Now, you can hear that my language is somewhat sort of angled towards the, you know, sort of negative, but it can also, it comes to the surface as, as, as positive, as great joy, as my, my daughter, for example, this evening, the little dance show for us, for my wife and I, because she was just brimming with just huge amounts of energy and was desperate to show us her creative expression. That's what we witnessed was a behavior, but it's tied with a feeling and the feeling comes to the surface. Feelings will always come to the surface. Freud had this wonderful thing about repressed feelings never die. They get buried alive and they come forth in even worse and stranger ways. And that's I'm about 80% there, I think, in terms of that quote. We could look that up and really refine it. But 
the idea is that your feelings are there. They're immensely powerful. Feelings don't just go away by pretending they're not there. They do emerge, whether we like it or not. So behind every behavior is a feeling. Behind every feeling is a need. Human beings are deeply, deeply driven by needs. Some very basic fundamental needs, like, for example, if you try to strangle somebody, a minuscule, if nothing, percentage of the world's population will allow you to do that. Most people will fight back. You try and strangle a child, they'll fight you. Okay? It's all the way from the very basic survival level, and it sort of expresses its way outwards from that. And some people have talked about hierarchies of needs. Some people talk about a sort of an interwoven web of different kinds of needs, and I have a sort of a few preferences on how I operate from there. But needs are exceptionally powerful. Met needs produce feelings, which produce behaviors. Unmet needs produce feelings, which produce behaviors. Quick aside, I'm not suggesting that any feeling that elicits a behavior is fine and people cannot just run around being absolute idiots and tyrants and, and whatever. There are boundaries to how we interact socially, blah, 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 blah. And you can call people out on their behavior. But if you don't understand that behavior comes from feelings, which come from needs, met or unmet, then I think we miss the potential for the depth of connection with other human beings and ourselves. Because of that, if we are to explore relationship with each other, we actually need to move through those three levels. And so an interaction between two people where all you address is each other's behavior does not take you very far. If you're able to talk about the behavior and then that leads you to talk about the feelings on each side, and we can acknowledge those feelings to be valid, then we've progressed further. But if we can go even further than that, and we can now talk to each other about our needs, met or unmet, then I start to think we are forming connections. Person A forms a connection, starting in the deepest part of who they are, with person B connecting in the deepest part of who they are. And often I would sort of draw this graphically for people as just well, there you are on the surface and you build a bridge, or you can also build bridges deeper down, or you can also really, you know, this language like heart-to-heart -heart connection, et cetera, et cetera. And that for me is moving through all three of those levels. Deep listening facilitates that because we are patient enough and we're willing to make the self-sacrifice enough to allow our storytelling partner to move from their behavior to their feelings to their needs. That takes time. It takes patience. Most people, including myself, don't just open a conversation with, you know, um, this happened yesterday and I realized I was very angry about it. And the reason I was angry about it is because you didn't meet my need for a physical connection or some sort of word of affirmation or whatever. <laughs> not many people start like that many people will say you pushed me over the other day you're an idiot oh well i'm not an idiot screw you and then we're off to the races which is just unhelpful so the threefold process then is person a person b step one person a tells their story they're allowed to speak for as long as they need to they can express whatever they want without interruption, interjection, correction, anything like that. 
And as I find, as people get better, you can start to increase, you can start to include a few nuances to that. Like you can interrupt someone if you're going to ask them a clarifying question. You said this, did you mean this? Okay, great. Thank you. Let's continue. But person A gets to speak for as long as they wish to. They then get to indicate when they're done speaking. And that concludes part one. Part two, the listener, person B, tells the speaker, person A, what they heard person A say. They don't get to put their own spin on it. They don't get to say, well, you said this, but it's unfair. They don't get to correct them. They don't get to, and this is obviously in its purest form. Okay, so person B here isn't correcting, they're, they're reporting. Yeah, they're reporting, and I prefer the language of reflecting because it says, I am going to tell you what I heard you say. And so, yeah, reporting, and I, I don't know why, perhaps I should think a little bit further about that, but I find that the, the language of reflection sounds a lot less formalized, and it sounds more to me, you can use the language of like, what I hear you saying is, which for me is, I'm going to reflect back to you, I'm going to give you back what I've heard you saying. And the purpose behind that is for you to tell me whether I heard you well or not. And that's part three. So part one, the speaker speaks and the listener listens. Part two, the listener speaks, but only to tell the first speaker what they heard the speaker saying. I heard you say this. I heard you say this. So part two, you can also over time start to in include some nuance. Like I heard you say this, and that sounds as though it's quite hurtful. Or I heard you say this and it almost made me feel as though you also meant that. But that is only allowed, for lack of a better word, when it is to clarify or to take a educated guess at what the person is really trying to communicate. It's not to take a stab. And I'll come, okay, I'll just, I'll come to that. I'm trying to jump ahead. <laughs> It's you may only reflect, and and I found when doing this with couples to get started, it's supremely awkward. It requires a lot of stop and start because you have to say no, 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 wait. <laughs> I know you're pissed off. I know you disagree with them. I can tell it's all of your body language, and you're trying to stop them. And oh, but it's not what I said. Da, 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 da. It doesn't matter. Shut up for a minute, and perhaps you'll learn something new. Perhaps you'll be surprised. Perhaps you'll be surprised to hear that what you thought was a neutral interaction was deeply hurtful for that person. And how they're feeling matters. You can't say, oh, but you can't feel that. <laughs> you can't say, oh, that feeling is invalid. You have to take that seriously. And then the third response is the speaker speaks a second time and says, yes, I feel as though you've heard what I had to say. Or, and this is very simple level, or they say, no, I don't think you got it. And if you don't think, and if that person says, I don't think you got it, then we repeat steps one to three, and the listening baton doesn't change hands. Person A speaks again. Person B has to listen. They have to reflect back. And person A says to complete the cycle, yes, that's closer, but you're still missing something. And we repeat the cycle again. Person A still speaks, person B. You can see it, it requires a significant investment of time, especially if we're not well-schooled in listening to each other. And it, the baton only changes hands when person A says, yes, on this topic or whatever it is, I, I really feel as though 
you're hearing me. And that for me is deep listening. It's an investment in putting your own things to the side for the moment and looking to hear deeply, intentionally what the other person is saying. And so as you can see, I mean, it, it requires vast amounts of trust and patience. It requires trust, you know, from the listener's side to know that, you know, they're also going to get their turn. <laughs> and it's not a match of who gets to score points on listening, etc. They have to put down their defenses. They have to be willing to be surprised. They have to be willing to be reached in their own feelings. If person A says, you really hurt me, they have to be willing to risk something and go, that I'll, I'll let that into my feelings level. Oh, wow, I, I missed that. I hurt you. Okay, I'm, I'm willing to hear that. I'm willing to let that impact me. And that's part of, I find, what listening does, deep listening, is it allows you to be impacted by the other person and their story. And it fosters just genuine connection over time. But, last disclaimer, it might kill you. It's fucking hard. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievably difficult. And I think it's why so few people do it. And why, and just in case I'm coming off as some all-knowing preacher, which I'm absolutely definitely not, it's why by default and by knee-jerk reaction, I actually prefer not to practice deep listening <laughs> um, <laughs> with anyone who's significantly connected with me because it's unbelievably hard. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. It is possible to get better over time, but it is still, there's a, it's a lot of energy goes into creating, nurturing, and growing deep, meaningful relationships with other people. So, yeah, I think I've, I've said a lot. I think let me stop there uh, for now and like have at it from your side. What do you think? Or what have I missed? Or what do you disagree with? Or what would you add? Or what other directions? Or whatever. Sure. I, I, I must say, I, I feel like I'm taking a masterclass in deep listening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> Rather than being uh, someone who, who potentially even has anything to offer in that sense. I feel like I can be so good at this when I'm dealing with someone that I'm not triggered by. But when my own feelings are involved and my own wounding is involved, it can be tremendously difficult. And so, so when you were speaking about the three layers, I feel like if we can just jump back to the three layers and then, and then jump forward to the threefold process, if that's okay. Sure. When, when recognizing that the, the surface level, there's a behavior behind this behavior, there's a feeling and recognizing that there's a feeling behind that feeling there's a need when we're dealing with people who are insecure and wounded people that have had abuse people whose abuse runs deep we're often dealing with needs that have not been met that we might trigger into and we see bad behavior and when they express things to us, they express things poorly to us. And we might not understand what the unmet need is or the abuse or the trauma that they faced. And even all they might, and when they start speaking about the insecurities and the fears and what happened to them, they go into a disordered state and they start fighting with us or they start 
accusing us with what they say or they that they become triggered when we get to the depths of these things in people we're often dealing with things that are wired i think of it as being wired into their dna because it gets wired into it, it it's a physiological reaction people become very disorganized in their thinking and their emotions when we go very deep with them and and we often encounter that not with our co-workers not with our friends perhaps as we start building a deep friendship with someone you start seeing a different side to them and definitely with our partners and when it comes to that it's very hard to understand what it is so often when they're triggered and they're telling us what they're feeling they're often accusing us they're often attacking us because they're feeling unsafe not because they're necessarily unsafe with us but because they're feeling unsafe with us and and i know this because i do this <laughs> Preach. Yes. you know I hear you. when when i'm in tim is in you know guru pastoral mode like people go wow like Tim, you're like so sensitive you're so understanding we really feel heard you 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 know <laughs> they can sing my praises if you are my l lover <laughs> you see a different Tim. you see a Tim that is uh yeah. who's yeah. whose who's abuse and neglect is so long-standing and so wired into the deep uh, lizard side of my brain that I very quickly start feeling insecure and stressed. And then I get all blamey, I get all accusatory, I get all mean. Why? Because I'm wired for fight or flight. So I'm either going to reject you by, by running away before you can reject me, or I'm going to win the fight. And, and how do I win? Well, how did I learn to win when I was young? I had to punch harder and quicker than someone. I had to win yeah. that fight first. I had to hurt okay. first. And so that's often a part of something. So when practicing deep listening, it's very important for both parties to be aware of their, uh, I mean, what's the term for this? Complexes, uh, trauma triggers, uh, history, um, trauma bonds, history, all of that kind yeah. of things. So, so there is a layer in which when we tell our story, we become aware of what events and experience have shaped us. And then there's a way in which we tell our story where in telling that story, we're not processed and we get into a space when we're triggered. And I feel like there's different layers of storytelling and deep listening that are appropriate depending on the context. Yeah. Th does that make sense? So for instance, if you and I are doing a one-on-one -on -one and we're really getting to know each other and we start tripping into this territory, there's a different level of deep listening and conversations take place than if four or five people are gathered in a group and people are telling the story of a relationship or an experience that they've had. They're, they're not going to drop down to as deep into the depth of these layers. So yes. they might be talking about their behaviors and the experiences they've been through. They might touch on some of the feelings that they work with, but they're probably not going to get into their level of their deep triggers or their deep fears or their deep met and unmet needs or not understand them. Just want to throw mm. that out as at, at the start in terms of talking about the three layers and just, just, just help me with this because I'm... I can be good with this with other people, but the minute my own needs and feelings are involved, I can be particularly good at pushing people away and harming people, mm. <laughs> especially people that deeply care for me and that I deeply care for. If I don't mm. care for mm. people, I can be a saint. So I can spiritualize <laughs> this kind of abstracted uh, love. What is this? This uh, 
Agape love, like what's the term for that again? The yes, unconditional yes, yes, love. Yeah, the unconditional, unconditional love. Oh, just I can I can work with that. Why? Because I'm used to setting myself aside. I'm setting my needs aside. Like I don't matter and that don't count. But the minute I get into a relational interaction, my needs do matter and they do count. Then suddenly I'm I'm all over the show and I'm just all, all organized and disordered mm. and and triggered and 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 upset and and needy and insecure and attacky and blamey and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And so, so with the experience that you've got, you, you see that now, now when I host groups, we're often interacting at the lighter level and mm. I could be very careful with couples and partners <laughs> in terms of how mm. they tell their story and get involved sometimes because they, they sometimes dip into these things with each other, but I stay mm. out of that. Whereas you do a lot more couple and family counseling. So you've got a lot more experience at actually knowing how to deal with that. So um, I'm going to stop rambling and exposing myself now <laughs> and throw it over to you. <laughs> well, I, I do appreciate the exposure because I think it's one of the things that it does is that it, it reminds me and, and hopefully our, our listeners is that to be into deep listening means you, you have to have the skin in the game. It, it's not something that you can just do when it's easy and when it's, you know, with somebody that's distant to you. To, to really invest in deep listening is to go into these spaces where let me let me put it this way i think i think it's impossible for anyone who seeks to invest in deep listening to not be drawn towards some sort of deeper and broader maturity within themselves i don't think anyone who looks to go and do deep listening well is not going to be drawn forward to become a more mature version of themselves. Part of becoming a more mature version of yourself is to face these things within you that you've so sort of poignantly just brought out for us to see. It is to face the fact that to listen to somebody else, we don't really have any skin in the game. And by that, I mean relationally with the other person. It's not asking that much of you. But to sit across from someone who's telling a story of their experience and a lot of elements of those stories are poking holes at you. And sometimes they're actively trying to poke holes at you by telling the story. That asks a huge amount to stay very conscious, very present and very on sides with listening to that and the story and hearing it for who that person is. It's that's why I say, I mean, I, yeah, it's make no bones about it. It is exceptionally difficult. And so I don't share that from a, you know, I've got it all together perspective. A lot of what you say resonates with me as well. And I think of this quote that's attributed to Mother Teresa. And she says, you know, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And you think, oh, isn't that nice and trite and cute and let's put it on a muffin and whatever. But like, Okay, well, you go and do that. It's far easier to cross the oceans and to save somebody else's family, to give sacrificially to somebody else's family. People, but yeah, that asks a lot. You've got to buy the plane ticket. You've got to travel away from home. Da, 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 da. But you can be anyone to those people. You go to a, some land far away and you interact with some group, some community, some individuals, some. NGO, some great needs, some whatever, however you want to dress it up. 
You can be anyone to that. But then you come home, let's say, or you come back to an area, a space, a context with somebody who knows you and is knowing you more and more. And you can't hide those things about you that are hard and difficult. And what's worse is often that person will point them out because the things in you that are hard and difficult hurt other people that you're closely connected with because they are the proximity issues here, right? They are closer to you. And so if you have sharp edges, they're more likely to be cut. When you go to some other place to work with somebody else, the proximity issue is far less. And partly of that, as you so correctly point out, is that because you know, you one does go in with this, okay, well, I've just, just put a wall around all my needs. They don't matter right now, and I'm here to meet that need. But you can't live like that with someone for 20 years. I mean, that's that, that only, in my view, is a, is a road towards massive dysfunction to deny oneself over and over and over and over and over again. Eventually, that's it's going to come out good, bad, ugly ways. And I know that from myself as well, from being a very good self-needs, my own needs denier, and preaching to myself for a long time that other people's needs matter more and you must serve and blah, 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 blah. There's all sorts of levels of dysfunction that come with that. And so, yeah, to... It asks a lot to put those sorts of things aside within a listening cycle and to genuinely hear the other person. It asks a lot of self-knowledge. It asks a lot of trust in the process. It, when, when I first started doing this with people, I couldn't commit. I couldn't trust that the process, if, if I started as the listener, it was hard for me to trust that I would eventually become the speaker. Because one of the things that immediately emerges is, oh, well, look, there you are again. And like, it's not about you and the other person gets to have their story told. And, you know, you have to be the first to say sorry. There are all these sorts of things that you have to face. But if you can commit to this, let's say, and, and I talk about this within the context of a, of, of a close relationship with you and one other person, because I think that's the deepest expression. And so it offers the greatest sort of, examples of what we're talking about and i'll come to your question on groups now now but but i aim there because i just think it's it's yeah i just think it's uh it's the the place where we can go the deepest so let's start almost with the ideal right and work backwards over time if you can repeat this practice and if you can do it well both sides you can start to build currency with each other you can start to build a trust that Okay, well, I'm going to start first, and it might mean that I have to hear some hard things, or I might have to resonate with some hurts of this person across from me. But if I am actually committed to this person or to this relationship and to myself, then surely that's something that I actually do want to invest in. Not only invest in that, but we're building this trust that, okay, well, if I'm going to start by listening, I'm going to have to do some hard work. But... I will also have my turn to be heard and my partner or my friend or my whatever will also then have to do that hard work. And we're going to invest in equal kind of energies towards each other, doing the hard work to show the other person that they're important. It's what deep listening does. It says you're a value. 
I think that's why when I listen to the, you know, somebody says listening, I'm immediately like, well, that's going to save. I mean, that's what saves the world, in my view. Not storytelling, not anything else. Listening saves the world. Because it goes, okay, I am going to work hard to show you that you mean something. That what's happening within you and around you is very important to me. Because it's important to you. And so that means we share that importance. That's part of the bridge that we're building. Your life, your experience, your hurts, your triumphs, those things matter to me too. And I'm going to bear witness to them. And I'm going to be your active partner in that. And so, you know, you see the superficial version of this, of like cheering people on in things. It's wonderful. It's good. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to suggest that. But it's not as deep as really sharing someone's story. So just very superficially going, oh, you like, oh, no, you, you're switching jobs and it's your first day at a new job. Yeah, awesome. I'm thinking of you. That's great. That has great currency and it's really wonderful and it's really valuable. But it's even more valuable to go even deeper than that. Even deeper than that. And that's what this allows us. But it takes time and it takes repetition and it takes missteps and it takes trust that those missteps will be fixed and it requires just more and more and more and more repetition, I find, of the listening on both sides. And when you talk about groups, like, perhaps I just want to be clear at this point that I'm speaking here in the context of a human being who's learned things about what it means to be human and how to do this with other humans. I don't want to misrepresent what I'm doing right now as some sort of great counselor-backed lecture or anything. This, for me, is fundamental, what it means to be human, and I have discovered these things to be deeply true for what it means to be human and for others to be human and for us to do that journey together. So I find in groups it just becomes diluted, and that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. But you're right. My experience also is that it's not as easy to go that deep because now we have one person speaking and we have three people all having to set their stories aside to invest but you also have the airtime question right which is like if you have an hour and a half for four people to meet together how many questions can each of the three people ask in terms of clarity of what the speaker is saying how many times can you know if person a speaks then person b reflects and then person C, and then person D, all reflect to A. Do they do that all, you know, one after the other? Or does A speak, then B reflects, then A speaks, then C reflects, then A speaks, then D? Like, it becomes a little bit awkward, actually, and just a little bit clumsy in its its application, you know. And, and so I think we do dilute that space somewhat. And so it is, as you say, so in some ways you go to a slightly... Yeah, perhaps I'd put it this way. It's less less of a deeper level than I find what can happen one-on-one. It's not unvaluable. There's a there's a series that I've I've hosted a number of times called The Seven Key Relationships, which I'm gonna rebrand and relaunch next year. Um, that brings us in. And in that, when it's shared in a group context, everyone gets to tell their story and everyone else listens, but they don't get to clarify 
and they don't get to speak a second time as as the as the speaker because you've got four or five people and you're taking that hour and a half two hours to do the to do the group session there isn't room for for the others what i find valuable about that is is the person telling the story so 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 the first thing it's a facilitated process it takes people from their least intimate relationships to their most what it does it's it actually schools people into storytelling and it schools people into listening and very much listening not to respond but listening in order to listen alone and that becomes valuable and when they carry that into the other relationships or they carry it into one-on-one one-on-one environments they actually develop the capacity to listen to someone to listen to them mm. and then when they respond it's out of actually having listened to them rather than being triggered or reacting to something or wanting to correct something or anything like that. So I find in, in that in that as a facilitated process it actually ends up being quite valuable. But I've but but I've seen many groups and, and also equally experienced many groups where it just doesn't work out that way. And and that comes down to the quality of the facilitation, but also to the quality of the storytelling and listening. If if people aren't listening it kills the opportunity for people to tell their story because it breaks their trust and their connection. Mm, but if, mm, if mm. everyone is telling their story and people are actually practicing listening, it actually fosters connection. It fosters getting to know people, especially if you stay at the safer levels in storytelling through that process. Um, so I think it can be tremendously valuable there. But understandably, at a, at a group level, it's one thing at the level of the kind of connection that you have with a spiritual accompaniment, it's a it's another kind of thing at the level in which you have it with your kids or your family members or the level at which you have it with your with your committed deep life partner and close friends there's different layers of depth that we can get into you know so one won't necessarily go as deep in a group setting but it can be very valuable as a starting point for people that then enables them to go deeper because they've got the practice of telling stories and they've got the practice of listening. So I find Absolutely. it valuable in that context, but it's, yeah. it, it's not your deepest, darkest secrets that you're going to throw out in a group. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you sacrifice in a group context is the question of, do you feel as though I've heard you? Because it doesn't close that loop which I think is essential to the deep listening perspective, is the question, do you feel as though I've heard your story or not? And if it's not, then I still hold the responsibility as listener to go further to really hear your story. And, and that, I think, is very difficult to achieve, you know, as we're saying, in a, in a group context, because there are these different constraints. And also, as you say, just quite clearly, there, there are levels at which people will and will not go in groups. And that's absolutely like, I'm not for one second suggesting this is bad and we should do this differently, whatever. There are different contexts, you know, as, as you say as well, that elicit different responses. Um, but but one-on-one, -on -one, you have that beautiful opportunity because it's just the two of you there and the focus is very clear around, okay, do you feel as though in terms of what I'm telling you that I'm getting you? And that confirmation is a huge, like that's, that's like laying a couple of huge planks down across the opening in the bridge immediately. Yes, I do really feel as though you've heard me. Um, and that's often the sign at which the process can reverse 
you know, the bat and the responsibility for listening can be. And the amount of energy I've found that is unlocked in a moment like that, yeah, you you really are actually hearing me. The, this relief, there's, there's often some sort of like endorphin-based response from the person being listened to around them. This actually feels amazing to be seen, to be heard for what I'm really actually trying to say, for what I really experienced, et cetera, et cetera, is is hugely affirming around them and, and the story that they own. Um, and I think that's possibly why I always take I aim at the one-on-one. But it's not impossible, as you say, to hold highly the value of the storytelling and the listening in other contexts. And it is even in the in the one-on-one, it's practiced at different levels depending on where you're at and the trust relationship and the frequency with which you do it and the way in which you do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I also love what you talk about the facilitator because that's often key in the group setting is some sort of a modeling often to start with and a reinforcement around, yeah, we're, we're, we're really doing this. Um, and And if people are telling their story and are sort of moving around a group and they are feeling as though the others are committed to engaging with what they're saying, that builds a huge trust element within a group quickly. Or as if I remember correctly, what you said last week can kill it almost immediately as well. As if someone comes out with a, oh, you guys are all very screwed up. Awesome. Let's stop this group right now then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or I mean, I've I've, I've even had a group where um, there was someone that would just like literally switch off and like like fall asleep while everyone else told their stories. And that that was their thing. It it also just just killed the group. It really stimulates intimacy, I find. (laughs) People are desperate to open up when you snore. Snoring specifically. It makes me want to get closer to, to them with a pillow and just smother them. <laughs> Stop the snoring. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think this is the kind of thing that, that again, when it comes to the threefold process and and you're, you're listening to someone, I, I find that it's so easy for people to want to jump in, especially when in a one-on-one context to go, you told something, your story wrong or you said something that was passive-aggressive, or you said something that was mean, and I'm going to jump in at you at that. And that doesn't foster any sense that the person has heard. And I I found myself needing to practice taking that knock to hear the person's story for what it is and take my ego and myself out of it. Because whether they get me right or wrong in close relationships is less important than what they've concluded. We can always come back to correcting a story at another time, or shifting a perspective, or they can get better at not saying mean things when they're telling their story, right? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> but but what's important is is for them to be heard when they're telling that story, and I find I find that that can be really hard, especially in a close relationship. Yeah, no, I'm with you, and and some of what you were saying earlier just reminded me that we are often expressing ourselves in relationship in a very defensive posture. We're either trying to mitigate risk, you know, sort of upfront or proactively mitigate risk. We're we're putting our feelers out to cut as much of the pain and potential future pain out of our experiences as possible. Or we're trying to make up for current pain that we're feeling. And so we're forever protecting ourselves. And that's what 
that's what manifests in the behavior. And, you know, you talk about people saying passive aggressive things. And if I just look at the way in which I manifest in the most unhealthy and unhelpful ways is because of that is because I'm trying to protect up front. I am trying to get you to agree that you hurt me without really showing you my feelings. Because if I open up to that level, you might hurt me more. There's a huge risk involved with me telling you my story because you might use that against me. You might go, I can't believe that hurt you. What an idiot. Like, what a wuss. Did that really hurt you? Oh, shame. Must I, must I be far more gentle with you in the future? I mean, you know, then you do want to stab people, probably rightfully so. But, but it's a huge risk to do that and to go beyond those feelings down into your needs and say, I'm actually asking. So at the feelings level, I'm saying this is what I'm experiencing. There's almost a take it or leave it there, although it's exceptionally painful. If we go down to the needs level, I'm asking something of you. I'm saying, please don't do that again, or please do more of this. I need this from you. I'm, I'm asking you to smile at me more often. <laughs> I'm asking you to stop scowling at me when you see me, whatever it is, because I need that from you. That is unbelievably vulnerable. and. I think we are just not wired as humans to go out there and be super vulnerable. And and I also think that we are, <laughs> but I think we desperately need, and that's why it's called needs. We need that. I'm not talking about I want you to give me $10,000 every day. Needs and wants need to be differentiated. But needs are, this is essential to me feeling loved heard, important, valued, like I can show up in this relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And that has to be mutual, I think. It must be both ways. But we will be protective all the time. But deep listening helps that. Because the more you proactively communicate to the person that you are in conversations with over a period of time, I'm on your side and I actually do want you to trust me from beneath your feel your behavior to your feelings and then down to your needs. And then you carry that in a meaningful way forward. Even if you get it wrong, you return to say, I'm sorry, I do still want to do that. And you genuinely do that. And you and you and that's your approach and that's what you're trying to see through. It slowly starts to to, I think, dial down the extreme defensiveness, you know, that you're talking about the reptilian brain, like I'll just do anything I can to just keep myself from getting hurt in this situation. But it is, it is exceptionally hard and it does ask a lot. It asks a lot of the storyteller to trust and you can do huge amounts as the listener to show that that trust is founded, that it's worth being placed in you, that you're going to take seriously what you hear and you do that by listening by reflecting, by showing that their feelings impact your feelings, by acknowledging the fact that you have needs and so do they. And so therefore, they have needs because so do you. So again, it's putting that person first in that immediate interaction. So part of the problem with this is it's hijacked all the time. And many people, I think, have been in in, in systems and spaces in which they've told their needs are unimportant or sinful or whatever it might be. And, and it's hard to acknowledge that we have needs. And if I think about the generation that raised me, needs were never on the table. This is something I've had to learn as an adult, that I can legitimately have needs 
and that I could risk sharing those in relationships and that I could even risk expecting that they might be filled. Wow. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, it is. There's a lot yeah. of steps. That's a lot of ground to cover from where, where I was raised. <laughs> be, be, before, before even getting there, it's often easier to, so like, hypothetically, say we've been doing something, you behave in a particular way, it hurts my feelings. I can very easily go, Steve, you did this, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt or I'm angry. Feelings of insecurity, pain, anger are, are easy ones to actually like draw on your behavior. I feel the following, therefore you bad or therefore I'm bad, as is often the counter. In all the world's language of own I language, I can try to, if I'm only looking that deep, if I'm not able to see what my deep needs are, I can use I language in terms of behavior, and it's always going to come back in terms of trying to address or draw attention to behavior, because I often want to understand and explain the situations, the following do you remember this situation? Oh, but then you're blaming me for it. No, I'm not blaming you. I'm drawing attention to a situation. I'm referring to my, my, my feelings. I'm trying to get to a need. How, how do you help people process that so that they're actually arriving at what their needs are to understand what it is that they're working with and whether their needs are being unfairly projected onto someone or fairly owned by themselves or do, do you understand what I'm meaning? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can get clearer at this. I think so. How how would how would I do you mean individually interact with someone who was unclear in terms of their needs, or how would I interact with someone who was blaming me for for what they were experiencing? Well, I guess I guess when someone's intention isn't to blame you, they're they're intending to understand what it is that's going on with them. But their access to that is this is a situation and and the feelings that are evoked for them. Hmm. I would try to be as interested as I possibly could in what they were feeling. And I would ask them at points along that interest journey, whether they felt I was understanding what they were feeling, whether I was hearing what they were feeling, and that I would try to ask them whether that was connected with something that they're feeling that they were lacking, or perhaps something that I was doing that they didn't like, or perhaps something that I wasn't doing that they would like. And so it's very exploratory, but my so if if that, I that, think about that, kind that's of, basically the threefold cycle there, the, or the threefold yeah, process, because is, is to ask to go deeper. Can you take me deeper? Are you willing to take me deeper? And so you know, some of what you talk about there is it's difficult to kind of think through all the specifics. But one of the things that I have found that I have to do, I think, from my own side, but also with others, is sometimes say, okay, well. I can remember a specific disconnect with a family member and I wanted to know what they were feeling. And they basically said, well, you're an idiot and it's your fault and I'm not going to tell you anything more. And my response to that could have been, ah, fuck you too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, let's we'll just not talk again or whatever. 
And for some reason, whatever that may be, I was able in that moment to go, when you're ready, would you be willing to do that? And I think that is sometimes the function of deep listening, is to hold out the olive branch and go, well, I'll be ready to listen, which in a way kind of means that you start listening when you say that. And this particular disconnect lasted six weeks. I had to wait in that listening pose without digging back. You know, this is typical of you, like all the things at the mud that we can continue throwing at each other. I had to wait for six weeks till that person, I don't know, trusted me, trusted themselves trusted the situation, possibly all three, possibly more things, to come forward and say, I think I'm ready to tell you what I feel. Now, in that six weeks, I'd built up probably a million and one conversations between us that I'd played through our heads. So I had all the answers for what they were going to say. I had all the refutations for what they were going to say. Did you I was ready to fight. I was, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like, you know, just the, the really – the really immature part sides of me had filled all that space with this. And when they finally said they were ready, I had to deal with that six weeks worth of stuff and go, okay, if I'm really going to come in here and listen to this person and try and build something valuable between us from my perspective, I can't drag all that in here. The only thing I can take in is my willingness to say, right, tell your story and I'll listen as best as I can. And I got a number of things wrong. If I think back and kind of self-evaluate where I did try to interject and I did, yeah, but I didn't mean that, you know. But as we sort of found each other very haltingly, it was kind of a bit stop-start at times, we were slowly able to really connect through with, well, you did actually carry a hurt. And it doesn't matter whether I meant to hurt you because I didn't. It doesn't matter that you got the wrong end of the stick because that happened. That is that person's experience. That is their experience of what happened. And unless I'm willing to hear their experience, they're highly unlikely to want to hear my, oh, but that's not what I meant. And that's another thing I think that deep listening does is sometimes it just unlocks some of the blockages. And if you're willing to just let some of the oh, well, I didn't mean that, to just kind of get through the pipes. And that's what the listening does. Oh, you know, so you heard me say that, okay, and you took it this way, and that's what you understood was happening, and that's what you felt because of it, and, okay, and that's why you responded in that way. Am I hearing that this was your experience? This was your reality? It doesn't mean that I have to agree that that is reality. It just means I have to be willing to hear them to tell their story for how they see it. And then when they said, okay, well, now I'm willing to listen to your side, I said, well, my intention was actually this. And I felt between a rock and a hard place, and I didn't really know what to do, and it was very confusing, et cetera, et cetera. And to their credit and their graciousness, they were willing to hear that through. And in that process, we started to find each other again. And that's another gift, I think. Deep listening allows you to let go of parts of your own story because you've felt that it's heard. You're not fighting in this defensive stance of, but I'm right. They're never going to hurt me again because I'm holding up this shield. You can actually look at it and go, of course I should have known that they didn't mean to hurt me. Okay, I can let that go. Whereas previously, I wanted to tell my stories. Yeah, but you were trying to hurt. But now that you've heard me through and I've heard you through, I can let that go. And so 
I, as the listener, don't have to walk up to you and go, this piece of armor, you don't need it. This piece of armor, no, you don't need it. It's in, like, that's basically a full frontal attack. Let's be honest. <laughs> <That> is. <laughs> it is. Unless you have unbelievable amounts of trust. Let me put it this way. I can remember speaking in a church once around this passage uh, from, it's it's part of the Christian Bible. It comes from John's Gospel, which is four of the kind of central books in the New Testament that talk about the person of Jesus and their life, right? And And there's a portion in it in which Jesus is speaking and is talking about this interaction between Jesus as Son of God, God as God the Father, and people, and describes this sort of this this tree experience there's the language of vine and and, and it's a, the, this, i'm going to be deliberately inaccurate but for the sake of accuracy so anyone who's out there critiquing my bible exposition is, is going to have a hernia but calm down there's a tree picture of god god is kind of like um kind of we're like we're grafted as branches into God. And so there's a connection idea and we flow because of the connection. We grow because of the connection. We produce you know, fruit along our branches because of the connection. But there's also a picture put forward in the storytelling of where um, our branches also sometimes require pruning, which means cutting off parts that are not healthy, essentially. And any gardener worth their salt understands that for the, the general health of the plant and each limb, each branch, pruning is important. You go and you cut off things that are dying or that are malformed or whatever it else. And so the human analogy there is there are parts of us, and this is, I think, a maturity step, that we have to acknowledge that sometimes we hold on to or have been given to us that are not healthy expressions of who we truly are. Sometimes through great pain, we will relinquish those things. Very rarely through great love will we relinquish those damaged and unhealthy parts of ourselves. But the great love essentially looks like this. It's a human being lying down, and I'm going to switch analogies, lying down on a surgeon's table in an OR without anesthetic going, yes, please come on in. And would you feel free to just chop away at anything you feel is unhealthy at me in full trust that the surgeon doesn't want to harm you, has the best in mind for you. And this is kind of the analogy there is that God has the best plans for you. And I know this is overly simplistic, but kind of go with it, that you just lie back and say, hey, cut away, go for it, go nuts. Who the hell does that? <laughs> because even if what's being cut off is a boil or something disfigured or whatever that just doesn't belong to you as part of your true self, it's painful. It's unbelievably painful. And they've got a fucking knife. It's sharp. It cuts. What if they get it wrong? What if they put it in the wrong place? What if they cut off something that you actually want to keep? What if they slip? Like the, the trust levels are off the charts. And so no human being I've come across yet stands back and says, so you see all this armor I put up to protect me from you and our relationship? Come on through and just pull off the pieces you think I don't, that I, I shouldn't have. But deep listening does that because it invites you to look at your story after having been heard and that the listener actually said, okay, well, the way you tell it, I'm happy for all of those parts to belong for now. I'm listening. I'm hearing your experience. It allows you the chance to self-reflect and go, 
Perhaps I was a bit of a dick. Perhaps I got it wrong. Perhaps I missed something. I'll drop this or I'll drop that. So it was a bit of a round trip. But No, no I think what you're saying there is quite profound because it's, it's often only once you've had the space to tell your story and the person reflects back to you that you realize how poor you are at communicating what you're feeling and experiencing and why. Yeah. And and that 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 space is tremendously valuable because it then allows you to to respond perhaps with more grace the second time round, less accusation, less blame, less defensiveness, less pushing the person away. It allows that person, it allows you to get closer and take some of that armor off yourself, perhaps, and lay your weapons down to communicate what's really going on. And as the listener, I think it involves the same process because you drop your armor intentionally to listen. That is a, that the agency resides within you. You don't have to be that. You can close up as the listener. You can be defensive yourself. But if you invest in deep listening, you choose to put your armor down and you choose to, re to, to retain that non-defensive position while you listen. And that allows you to be reached and to go, yeah, you know what? Previously, I would have gone, oh, I can remember talking to a man and he was discussing his relationship with his wife with me. And he said, and then essentially, we'd reach this point in uh, the argument and she'd start to cry. And I'd be like, oh, here come the waterworks. And I think, like, there's a few options here. Either you think this this partner of yours is the most manipulative person on the face of the earth. And so they literally cry just to win the argument or whatever else. Like, But that's a horrendous position to hold against your partner. Perhaps you should divorce immediately or like walk out of each other's lives. If that's your honest read on this person is they're just using this to win or to beat you or whatever else, it's incredibly defensive. And if it's true, like let's call it quits. But your defensive posture is so clear to me, and it's always so much clear to see in someone else, right? <laughs> and, and to go, well, I'm not going to let you reach me. So anything that you show of vulnerability or pain or hurt, I'm going to go, oh, you're just, you're just trying to beat me at this. You're just trying to, you're trying to upset me, or you're, you're trying to get at me, or you're trying to force something out of me. But if you drop your armor as the listener, and the person starts to manifest some pain because of what's happened you may allow yourself to be reached by that and go huh, i don't need to be defensive in this i can go you look hurt and, and i'm not talking about like superficial hurt i i look i, I think it's impossible to have the conversation about needs within people without also highlighting the fact for people there is a need to own your own needs, to investigate your own needs, to put forward your own needs. And there's a need for you to understand the difference between your needs and your wants. There's an importance for you as an individual to understand the difference between a slight from somebody else and a hurt. And by that, I mean something accidental and actually really matters little in the balance of things and something that did get get to you in a far more deeper way and i think 
I think one of the clearest examples of this is deeply manipulative people who, in my mind, are just deeply hurt within themselves, will turn everything into the you know the deepest grievance on the planet. Not everything can be the deepest grievance on the planet. And so if that is the case, well, the person who is saying, you know, everything hurts, I think has some individual work to do themselves. So that aside, when somebody shows pain, if you if you have your defenses dropped, you can allow yourself to be reached and to respond and say, I can see that you're hurting. Perhaps you feel hurt or ashamed or whatever it might be that this person is hurt. And potentially the reason is you. You know, in that case, the blame is is accepted. You know, you are blaming me, and I would have to accept that because I can see that you're hurt and you're talking about an interaction we had and you know, it makes me feel sorry or responsible or whatever it might be. And I think that also unlocks something. You were going to say? This is incredibly profound in the sense that often people's defensiveness is proportional. Well, the, the, uh, defensiveness is one kind of behavior. The degree to which they push other people, perhaps they attack people, is often proportional to where they're deeply hurt and how deeply and consistently they've been hurt. And some people are just feral. They have had really poor experiences in one aspect of their life or perhaps many aspects of their lives. And if we're in any kind of caring profession, and I think the kind of stuff that we're angling towards is a deeper care and connection between people. We're looking at, at deeper living and loving through entering into relationship, through entering into the depth of relationship rather than through the kind of spirituality that, that says, if I withdraw from everything and give up my needs, then of course I can be saintly and love everyone unconditionally. Why? Because I need nothing. <laughs> yeah, because no one's around me. <laughs> and no one's around me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm alone and I don't need them anyway. So therefore yeah, I'm yeah, spiritual. Yeah. I right. can't <laughs> murder Todd for his weird humming because Todd doesn't live with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and 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 yet and yet I think there's also a difference between processing these things in a counselling environment with a third party who's who, who's there objectively and you're paying them for their services. They're, they're there, they're objective, they're enabling you to understand, but then you've got to still go and do this with a someone. And I think often what happens is 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 we don't get to do it with a someone that matters in a way that can hurt us again. Or can reject us again, or 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 abandon us again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are some things that are that are only healed in the context of loving reciprocal relationships. They're not healed in the in the paid love environment of a therapist. They they there, there are many things that can be, but there are certain things that can't be. And I've experienced that where 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 some of the trauma and pain that I've been through can be processed at one level with a counselor or a professional and then there's 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 a level of it that can actually never be touched at level at that level because it requires the vulnerability of a someone to care who might also then abandon and and that's where it becomes a whole different animal <laughs> because that's where it's tough I'm not sure if I want to say anything too deeply exposing in this context, but <laughs> but there's experiences that I know that I can that that I can refer to where where I realised exactly that you know where at a certain level I can tell aspects of my story and I've been fine can tell it in public can tell it to groups can tell it to individuals, but then went through but then have been through experiences with people that I care about where 
I just completely, completely got triggered. And it was really hard to understand why. And on some levels, I'll never understand why. But but through going through that experience safely with people, and you were one of the people that I shared some of that with, through going through that safely, not in order to even understand, but just to be in the context of being able to fall apart, was healing and restorative. Because it was a context of being heard for what my experience meant to me, not 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 with you or other people having to make full sense of it, but just to be in the context to be able to share it and to be witnessed for it, it can be healing. Oh, man, I, I love what you put your your finger on there. I think it's so it's so central to what we're talking about. Is it is to sort of paraphrase what I hear you saying essentially is that a lot of these things as kind of skills and practice can be built up somewhat on the sidelines, but their actual meaning is within the game itself, getting out there and, and being in real life situations. It, it is the work of living and loving I think, you know, on a, on a slightly different, in a sort of a little bit of a different way, but somewhat related, I think that's, that's always been one of my frustrations with kind of a Sunday-oriented church structure, which is just, it's like, it's so easy to do that, kind of just get together in a building and sing happy songs and all the rest of that and be happy and whatever on a Sunday morning, like for an hour and a half, it doesn't ask all that much. The hard stuff is out there like in the trenches every day with your family, <laughs> with your kids, with friends, with work colleagues, with strangers, with all sorts of stuff. And, and it's different levels of hard, but <clears throat> that that's really where the rubber hits the road. Can you actually live and love as opposed to just practice it or talk about it? And also with those people that are fractured and broken within themselves, <clears throat> who don't mm. have family, who don't have community. Mm. Yeah, it's all sorts of levels of, of intricate. But but that's where that's kind of where the the for lack of a better phrase, the real life is. And I, I just love how you put your finger on that again, very vulnerably and, and poignantly. That for me is part of my vision around some of what we're trying to do is that not not that it is easy to do in in a more sanitized perhaps environment, but that it actually becomes something that is integral to what it means to be a human being who lives in this threefold relational spirituality web and does that real time self to the divine self to self self to others that for me is is immensely challenging but i, th I think like that that's that's where it at that's that's where the real life is um and so i love how you say that like I, i've been switching languages at the moment and it's it's a bit it's an interesting process to say the least and i found a meme the other day that really just kind of sums up my experience really well and essentially it's that so we moved to the Netherlands and I'm now kind of transitioning across to Dutch. I speak Dutch fantastically in my head, I must tell you. 
it's it it sounds perfect up there. Like I've got quick comebacks, I've got insightful commentary, I've got an expansive vocabulary up there. But when I actually have to verbalize it, <laughs> like it's actually gonna come out my mouth, I sound suspiciously like an eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and the difference between kind of the practiced you know, and that's partly just the picture that came to mind as you were talking, kind of the, the practiced, almost safer space. You talk about processing with someone who's who's paid to help you process that through. And, and I really, I hear the weight of what you're saying there. It's like me talking Dutch with the imaginary people in my head. And then I've got to actually get it out there and say something to someone and I freeze and my vocab just diminishes by 98% and my ability to actually sound but my accent is perfect in my head like pronunciation is on form and it comes out just horribly <laughs> um, but that's part of the process like I actually have to go out and have conversations with more and more Dutch people that is the only way to do this and sure practicing in my head is useful and it holds value but the real life is out there speaking with others in a language that we can both understand that brings us together, that allows me to do everything from as functional as buying a Coke to putting myself forward in a job interview to building some friendships potentially to do whatever it is, you know? Um, and, and yeah, I, I love how you put your finger on that because it's absolutely central. It, it's, it's not something that can, can live in rehearsal. It has to live out there in the risk and the potential reward of what it means to to do that. But I don't think any of that really, really acknowledges the weight of what you're putting out there. And that's really what I'm, I'm struck by because it's immensely weighty what I hear you saying. That's why a while back when I when I designed the seven key relationships, it was to try to enable safer ways for people to, to basically practice that inward journey in relation to themselves, to work out what those markers and experiences are that affect their needs in a positive or negative way, and to be able to find some safe way to communicate that and be heard without being judged and to be to be accepted. Something that really worked in that context as well was the transition to the practice of the presence of God, that actually just evidence for people that God listens deeply to them and then moves in response to their story as well. And that's that's a whole different story. You know, so so in that context, the goal was the engagement with God rather than the feedback from the people in the group. And so that's where the real tremendous value lies and real healing and transformation for many people. But there again, that's that's taking a risk because it's taking the risk for many people that they've been raised to believe in a God they don't experience. Is God actually listening? And does God care to move in response to their story? That's a that's also a tough, vulnerable thing for people to to face and process. In many ways as well, when it comes to this kind of thing, you you put emphasis on it takes time. And I think we often want to have one conversation where we resolve things with people and it's going to take us 20 minutes with our partner. Whereas in, in, rea in truth, it might be a conversation that we need to revisit to chip away through the behavior, to chip away through the feelings, to chip away through the poor reciprocal communication 
the mutual defensiveness, the mutual attacks to chip away towards getting down to those deep needs. And in that safety, there'd be a restoration of the individual and together with that, a restoration of the relationship between two people. Because what often happens through the feelings that are triggered and the behavior that is a response or is, is that the relationship is broken as well. It's not just an expression of woundedness. And so, so deep listening, I feel, is a, is, is a constant commitment towards a level of forgiveness, but also an establishment of healthy boundaries. Because it's, it's me saying to you, Steve, I love you, but your behavior is not good. So I'm, I, there's a level of, of boundaries there to go, I want to hear your feelings and your needs. And, and I'm not saying I'm right. I also want to grow, but I'm making this commitment to you to hear you deeply. Does that, am I making sense here again? I, oh, I absolutely. Like yeah. No, absolutely. 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 I was trying to think on which which of the threads I was wanting to pick up on first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned safety. It's something I've put a lot of thought into over the last year or so. What what role does safety play in our lives, in relationships, in our maturity, in our growth, etc.? And and as I hear you describe the place of safety that's created to explore this, but then you also switch to talking about the risk, that feels for me very real. Because I think any conversation that is weighted too much towards safety does not actually build a skill set that is ready for real life. Because real life is risk, real relationship is risk. You know, you talk about the risk that people take to kind of, I don't know, reach that point of saying, okay, I'll talk to God as if God is listening, risk number one, <laughs> as if God will reply, risk number two, because there's risk that God won't. And, you know, I think that's partly where we push back against the the Christian kind of God is always there and always listening and always responsive and all the time, everything, blah, blah, blah. It's any relationship with that kind of reaching out involves the risk of the other not reciprocating because otherwise I, I can't see how it's a real relationship because real relationships are built on that risk of we're going to risk going towards each other. It's, it's a high risk environment. And so, you know, I think about, so, right, like, so, I mean, I'm hoping this is enough of a, of a kind of example to, to really carry in terms of our listeners, but I know that you and I both have some experience, I think you a lot more than me, in within the martial arts area, right? Yeah, yeah I've got some extensive. <laughs> yeah, right. So safety is an important part of beginning with that. There is a there is an introduction to elements of whichever specific you know martial art you're studying, et cetera, et cetera. And there are ways in which you are introduced and you begin to practice and you begin to get used to some of the basic core skills around that. And there there is a certain element of safety that is prioritized. It's not necessarily helpful that in your first session 
somebody beats you to a pulp and says, hey, look on the bright side, in 10 years, that will probably happen a lot less. So it's, it's measured to start with, and specifically where I think about like younger children or teenagers even starting to move into that, there's a large amount of, we're going to show you some of the basic moves and movements here, how to fall safely, how to, you know, we, we move at a slower pace, how to parry a blow, how to return, blah, 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 blah. It's not just, there's some gloves, everyone just go full on at each other for an hour and then go home. But if you stay in that space and you never test those skills, then safety is over-prioritized and you undo the initial work. Because the point of that is eventually to be able to use those skills, hopefully never, but at least that's my perspective, but they have to be able to show up in a real-life environment. And in a real-life environment, you're not potentially given the chance for, could we run that again quickly? Do you mind if we slow this down? <laughs> it's high risk. And it's the same with relationships. At See, this is where it gets tricky because at the beginning is a somewhat helpful statement, somewhat unhelpful statement, but to begin to explore within a place of safety where you can take risks of vulnerability but where there's a soft space to land in case things don't go quite as well, you know, working in a group, for example, a facilitator is the, is the safe space initially. They create and hone the space. They help to invite people in to agree around how that space will, you know, will act, will behave. And simple things like, you know, we all agree that we don't talk about what happens at the group, outside of the group, etc. Little just safeguards that encourage people to say, okay, I can risk a bit more here, I can risk a bit more. But eventually, the idea is that you have to take whatever you've built in that safety, you have to take that safety with you out into the world and practice it in a real life way. You have to go and be a part of building other safe spaces in potentially highly dangerous situations. You have to be able to engage with an individual you've never met before and take on the chin whatever emotional energy, physical, maybe not physical energy confuses things a bit too much, but there may be a lot of energy interaction, blaming, shouting, whatever else it might be. You have to be able to take that on the chin and make that a safe space itself, not back down and go, you know, you seem really worked up. What can you tell me about that? I'm here to listen. I'm here to help. And not become reactive yourself and defensive yourself. You have to be able to model that space of safety out in the real world. You have to be able to do that with your family, with your partners, with your close friends, with your, you can't stay in that place of safety always with the facilitator going, well, I'll only share real things about myself here. Same thing you talk about in working with a therapist or a counselor or a coach or whatever. To do that one-on-one -on -one with that person is only valuable to a point. Eventually you have to go back and find the person you were in conflict with or disagreement or disconnection and go, hey, I picked up some skills. I'm going to come and create a bit of a safe space here and say, I'd love to hear you out and what you've been feeling or what you feel has happened between us or the disconnect or like, what are you willing to share, etc. And you have to go and you've got to bring those things to bear in real life situations. And that's partly what I hear you describing, which is so important. Like that's that's where the work is. And often it starts in the safer spaces, but it has to go out. It has to fill in other areas of your life.
And th that's so. This is to quickly jump back into a bit more of like a psychological language. This idea of triangulation is what happens when two people have a disconnect, and one of them goes to talk to a third party, and just deals with all of the energy, the friction energy that's built up from the disconnection. Person A and person B have a disconnect. Person A feels huge amounts of energy stored within them because of the friction, the disconnect, etc. And they haven't been able to dissipate that energy with the person with whom they feel the disconnect. So they go to person C, get rid of the energy, talking it through with person C, but they never return to person B and say, well, actually, you and I are the one with the problem. That happens often, in my experience, anecdotally, don't quote me on this, I see it all the time with people who go to counselors, therapists, etc. They're never sent back. Now go and do this with your spouse. And that's why I believe so much in couples and group therapy, etc. Because it says, well, you're the guys with the problem. So how do we help you do this better between the two of you as opposed to just go, well, now you feel better for talking about it. Never go back to the actual person. So... And the reality is that often that one person's feeling like they're taking responsibility for themselves and what they're bringing to the table and then coming home to a partner who isn't taking any responsibility. So they're always carrying, carrying it. Yeah, there are all sorts of manifestations there, absolutely. So, so I wanted to make a comment on, on, on safety because we often put a lot of stock into the feelings of, of if you feel unsafe, therefore you are unsafe. And I don't, and, and that, is often true and I'm not taking away from that. But one of the things that I do is I, I go on night walks or, or evening walks, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in South Africa. We've got these rolling blackouts that we call load shedding. So we often end up with these, these periods where you don't have power and all the lights are off. And I live in a place where I'm, I'm on the beach and there's this lovely walk along the, along the coast. And when it's pitch black, and there's no lights on. I absolutely love doing that walk because I'm on my own. There's no one else around. And even if I come across people, I feel confident physically. I feel safe. The other night, I, I had a friend over and we went for a walk for, for the evening, like a, a female friend. And uh, we, 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 did, we, we did that walk. And so we walked through to, through to St. James. It's about uh, one, nearly two kilometers just as a walk. Stunning walk at night. And it's, it's feeling relaxed. And I, you know, I can feel that she's a little bit uh, uncomfortable. And we hit that point. She's like, do you mind if we don't walk back along this place, but we actually go up and we walk along the road? I was like, yeah, it's totally fine. She was like, I, you know, I felt comfortable doing this one way with you because I know you're, you're physically capable, but I don't actually feel safe there. And my response was, wasn't to go, well, it's perfectly safe, you're being dumb. My response was actually to respond to her and say, actually, absolutely, like, 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 of course. I mean, I enjoy this as a walk. I feel safe. But because we're in a space where you feel unsafe, we actually need to have this be safe for both of us. And, and safety is not always an objective thing. Safety is a subjective thing. It's how you feel based on the area, based on the terrain that you're going to, not necessarily who you're with. And I think when we get to emotional terrain, it ends up being a similar kind of thing. And I know for myself, if I go into certain emotional terrain, it doesn't matter who I'm with, I will feel unsafe. <laughs> and, and there's other areas that, that, I go, that I can go into that it doesn't matter who I'm with, whether they're safe for me or unsafe, I will still feel safe because there's a degree to which 
I feel the safety or unsafety based on who I am, not based on who I'm with or the situation that I'm in. And I think it's very important that that in order to build trust with someone, we can go into areas that we feel that we're unsafe, but we know that we're safe with the person that we're with. And it's very important to 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 have that experience to rewrite and recalibrate what safety means for us, especially when if we with people that we're not emotionally close to, we're perfectly safe no matter what they say or what the situation is. But the minute we with someone that's a closer or more intimate partner, it doesn't matter what the situation is, we start feeling unsafe. And and there's a lot of people who actually experience love as traumatic and awful because they're not used to it. And they don't know how to be safe in a context of stability, of security, of not being abandoned. Where people feel more comfortable being abandoned and being fought with than they do being accepted, loved and heard. And 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 that's where some of the work that we do, like this this series that we'll be running next next year, enables people to start moving from places where they're disconnected with themselves and others to experiences where they're somewhat connected with others and themselves. And that is a stepping stone to them doing this at a deeper layer, perhaps one-on-one in a spiritual accompanist environment, perhaps one-on-one in a counseling environment, perhaps a step further than that, one-on-one with a, with a close friend, and perhaps even further than that in terms of being able to do that with their partner. And, and, and yeah, so anyway, I'm just thinking back to what you said about safety and, and realizing that it's it's really important. But then the other thing is, no, no, I mean, that's just totally off track. But yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's like <laughs> ambushed and uh, seduced by tangents all the time. Yes, no, totally, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's an unbelievably complex for me conversation around safety. There, there are so many elements that we can tease out, and I'm with you in, in, in what you say. There, a lot of what you say speaks to me around agency and respecting people's agency and not forcing people to go places. And at the same time, relationship is a wonderful vehicle for asking, would you be willing to go there with me? Would you be willing to take that risk with me? either because I want to show myself as trustworthy and perhaps it will be fine, or because we're both willing to risk that and we don't know the outcome, et cetera, et cetera. Again, you know, it's, it's so nuanced and so many different levels. But to not respect people's feelings as a valid expression of where they're at and to not expect their, not respect their agency to choose where they're willing to go and not willing to go is a great recipe for things to fall apart. Uh, and I'm with you. The other side of the coin, which is often t- difficult to, have, to to hold in balance, is your boundaries will often determine the depth at which you can relate to others. And if the boundaries are too tight and too hard and too fast, then it's very difficult to move places with others because it's just you're hemmed in on all sides all the time. You have to to go deeper with other people does mean to some extent to shift boundaries and to take risks and to expand your safety zone, essentially. And so there are these very strange, somewhat paradoxical, somewhat mutually reinforcing, somewhat mutually 
interacting things going on all at the same time when we talk about relating to each other. Um, because, you know, if I think about the, the experience that you're talking on a, on a purely practical level, just to sort of make the point, which beyond that, I wouldn't push it any further. If you said, no problem, I choose to go back along the way we walked, and you can walk along the road, there would be an immediate disconnect. Oh, you know? absolutely. And yeah. your movement to move and to respect the agency, etc., it, it, it holds the relationship. If you felt your need was strong enough for you to need to walk back along that way and the person is unwilling to walk back. And, you know, again, this, this is where it gets super complex super quickly around safety, agency, respect for each other, mutual meeting of needs. Sometimes there is denial of one person's need in the short term to meet the other person's need, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, all those sorts of things <clears throat> that immediately show up in terms of, well, how are we going to negotiate this together so that we stay connected, so that there is mutual meeting of needs, not just one trumping the other all the time. And so, again, like, it's not quite a silver bullet, but often my silver bullet is, like, putting in the time and the effort to just keep listening, to remain intentionally connected with each other around the, okay, just, if you're willing to, tell me why you don't want to return this way. Why you can't do that. Why you won't do this. Why you felt disconnected from me. Why we fought the other day. Why you felt hurt. The curiosity element of the listening, tell me more, tell me more. Are you willing to let me further into your world? Really, really fosters deeper and deeper connection, the self-revelation, the ability to knit closer and closer together at deeper and deeper levels. I, I just find that it provides so much that fosters deeper relationship. It Look, it also provides so much that can produce conflict and difficulty etc but that is also a natural part of the process i think of getting closer and closer i i met with a couple once who'd come to see me after they'd been married for 42 years and they said well we just kind of just started fighting in the last few years and then the wife said to me and i realized like i'm very unhappy here i said well, back up a sec what do you mean you just started fighting in the last few years? No, we never really fought up until now. And I'm like, oh, well, there we go. Now that's why we're sitting here together. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you can't experience conflict in a relationship, what's going on? There has to be some conflict at some point. Otherwise, you're not going anywhere. That's a bit like one of the statements where someone said, yeah, I'm, my parents are celebrating their 50th anniversary. And someone says, yeah, I can't imagine being in love for that long. And the response was, yeah, no, I just want to be clarified. They haven't been in love for that long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so conflict is, uh, is just it's par for the course where it comes to relationship. But listening helps us do conflict well because we're willing to come closer together to not be defensive, etc. I like I like that. Listening helps us to do conflict well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conflict is not bad. Conflict is sometimes the process through which we excavate our own needs and bring to the surface to show to the other person. And often we do that through that volcanic eruption. I mean, that's what brings the magma from the Earth's from deep below the Earth's surface up to the surface. 
it's, it's a violent eruption, and that's often the way in which a need surfaces. And if we listen well and we're curious and we pay attention to each other, we can go, oh, I think I know what we're doing here. We're not actually talking about when I stubbed your toe with the lawnmower the other day. We're talking about you feeling like I don't pay enough attention to you. That's what's really going on here. It's not that I hurt your toe. It's what that symbolizes. It symbolizes that you feel that I wasn't paying enough attention where I was going, and I knocked you with the lawnmower, and that for you is a symbolic of our life together and that I'm not paying enough attention. You don't feel seen, i.e. you have a need to be seen more. How can I do that? Well, I can listen more to that need, and I can pay attention to what you're asking for, and then I can promise to try to fulfill that to the best of my ability. And that may mean that I never run over your foot with the lawnmower again, but it might more importantly mean that when you speak, I stop speaking and I pay attention and I ask you interesting questions. And when you do something around the home, I notice that and I say, hey, thank you for what you did. Or when you've been through a hard time, I say, well, I saw what you went through there. I think at least if you're willing to tell me more, I'd know more, but that looked really hardcore and I'm really proud of you or I really look up to you for your strength or whatever it is that I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. Or you can have a wonderful fight and not talk to each other for three days. And when you tell your friend, oh, what happened? Well, she's upset because I hit her with the lawnmower. Oh, he's upset because I hit him with the lawnmower. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. And deep listening would help us excavate that or at least pay attention to the geological you know, happenings on the surface through our behavior and go, oh, that started much deeper. Let's go deeper and let's see if we can figure out where that came from. And, uh, and let's, let's kind of work through that. But This is one of those conversations, again, that I thoroughly loved and, and definitely going to keep chewing through and just let echo within me. Yeah, I, th I think we've covered significant ground and it's, it's given me lots to think about as I speak and as I listen to you and I hear your reflections and your thoughts, etc. as well, to just go, firstly, like, yeah, this really, I can tell this is like central to my life, that this is important and that I can see the value and I really feel that it's central for, for any person. And it's been really helpful to to speak out some of the things that I think and to hear myself say it. And it's been equally helpful to hear you comment on or bring your own perspective. And so, yeah, thank you. I've, I've really loved this. And yeah, I think you're right. We could keep going on and on and on and on and could return to this. And that's why I love the value conversations as well, because to talk about things that are so central is just, uh, yeah, it's enlivening. You, you know, I think when we talk about it like this, uh, talk about a value we, we get you get snippets as to why it needs to be prioritized because of the value that we see and then we think of ways in which we practice it whether it's in a counseling situation or a spiritual accompaniment situation or in the context of a course yeah i think values are, are important because they're so flexible and they've got so many expressions in terms of their use cases out there in the real world um but i think most importantly is because values run deep and they literally add value. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excuse the pun. They literally add value in whichever environment they find themselves expressed in. Wow. I mean, deep listening ultimately does take us to deeper relationships. It allows us to, to arrive at the depths within ourselves because 
it's very important that we listen to ourselves but it helps take us into the depth of relationship with the other and the divine other when we feel that we are heard for the stories that we tell but also importantly when we understand that we are able to really hear them hear the other for what really moves them and that's that's something that's really a classic in the mist amongst the mystics the degree to which they're interacting with a divine other as someone who's prepared to share what they think and feel how they're moved by humans in their situation what their intention is etc etc that's not something that we hear enough of we see things through the veneer of religion and text so much that we forget that that behind that the divine other is a person who seeks to engage and relate and and we don't get there the true depth of intimacy and spirituality is our capacity to be present to and, and in that receptive deep listening state connect with the divine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that.